thank you so much for your interest in this story. Dr. Yongheng, can you talk to us a little bit? There seems to be some confusion. There's a lot of concern over people that are getting medical imaging, maybe you're doing it in clinics rather than hospitals. Uh, some confusion over who's paying, what these clinics are all about. Can you kind of bring us up to date and explain that part of it to us? Absolutely. Um, community imaging clinics, sometimes referred to as private clinics, aren't really private. They are primarily physician-owned clinics that provide publicly funded services paid directly by the medical services plan, the Ministry of Health, similar to the majority of family medicine clinics in BC. And there is a crisis in the BC community imaging clinics right now. The costs of providing medical imaging services have risen substantially, and the fee increases for these services have not kept pace. Community imaging clinics are becoming financially unsustainable, and many community imaging clinics are at risk of reducing services or shutting down completely. And as you said, this would have disastrous consequences for the health system in BC. The wait times are already long for medical imaging, and if community imaging clinics reduce services or close, the wait times will skyrocket even further. The community imaging clinics provide over 1.5 million diagnostic medical imaging services annually, which is approximately half of the outpatient imaging provided by BC for x-ray, ultrasound, mammography, And the other half of the outpatient services for those modalities is provided in the health authority facilities like hospitals that also provide CT and MRI outpatient services. What is the issue then as far as the the costs have gone up and is it because of the contracts that these clinics have with the provincial government that those are not being renegotiated or they're not getting any more funding from the provincial government? Community imaging clinics, the key part of the medical imaging infrastructure in BC, um, they bill the MSP for imaging services provided. The MSP fees include a professional component to pay the physician and a technical component to pay for technical and overhead expenses incurred by the clinic. And for most physician specialties, the technical component is about 30% of the total fee, but for medical imaging, the technical component is about 70% of the total fee. And there are technical costs that are much more extensive in radiology for the community imaging clinics, equipment, medical imaging technologists, admin staff, the building lease costs, which are obviously skyrocketing, image storage and retrieval systems, the supplies, all the, all the personal protective equipment that we've all had to uh, get for COVID. And the BC Consumer Price Index, so the inflation measure, has increased 24.9% from 2011 to 2022, but the medical imaging fees have only increased about 5.5% over that same period. So the community imaging clinics have had to absorb the difference, so 19% increase in costs with no commensurate increase in fees. So what does this mean for patients then that are dependent on using these clinics and are only getting these images, getting these, these imaging, this imaging done in a timely manner for the most part because these clinics are operational? Well, it is, it is a huge issue. I mean, even with these clinics operating, the wait times for breast imaging are terrible. The national wait time targets for diagnostic breast imaging are five weeks for people who don't need a biopsy and seven weeks for those who do require biopsy. And the wait times for diagnostic breast imaging at multiple sites is six to nine months in the lower mainland. So um, 
this will only get much, much worse if patients do not have access to the community imaging clinics. The community imaging clinics generally have shorter wait times than the health authorities. Um, they, they can be more efficient and get more patients done. And the huge volumes of patients that are done um, in the community imaging clinics just cannot be absorbed by the health authorities. Right, which, which makes a lot of sense. If that was the case, if they could be absorbed, then there really wouldn't be a need for these clinics to begin with. Exactly. So when we look at the, these clinics and when your society is saying they are so underfunded, there is the possibility they are going to shut their doors. Is that, is that going to be in a week, in, in a month? or I'm, How dire is the situation or the possibility of British Columbians losing these clinics? Well, unfortunately, it is potentially imminent. The clinics aren't financially sustainable. They're being sustained out of the goodwill of owners who have sometimes long-time passions for this work and extreme dedication to breast imaging. And many of the breast imaging studies done at these clinics result in a loss. These losses are getting larger, larger due to rapidly rising costs, and the owners of the clinics may be retiring soon. Whoever takes over these clinics will likely determine that breast imaging is not financially sustainable and will decide not to do breast imaging. So these patients then will be diverted to the health authorities which again causes the whole problem with the wait times and the health authorities not having the capacity to absorb these patients. In regards to um, whether or not clinics are, are closing soon, you know, um, the BC Radiological Society has had conversations with multiple clinic owners who, who are raising the alarm bells saying that they, they don't know how they will continue and um, they are operating at a loss, which just, can't, it, you know, that can't go on forever. And it's such a, a mixed message, isn't it, in that people, uh, women are being told, make sure you get your mammograms, make sure you get your breast imaging, or if it's something even more serious, that there's a reason why you have to go back and do a follow-up. Women are told that all of the time, and now we're also looking at this and potentially having not as many options to do that. Yes, it's um, it's a real problem, and in general, you know, breast imaging potentially hasn't been a priority in the province, but this is the result of that, and this is why things have to change. What needs to change then, or what could change, what would be the first thing that that could potentially change that would help solve this problem? Well, there's high risk of, you know, this problem getting worse unless urgent action is taking, and for many months, the BCRS has been calling on the government to take urgent action on four key issues. Emergency overhead support for the community imaging clinics, action on the extreme shortage of medical imaging technologists, to look at the crisis in breast imaging wait times and how to fix that, and the need for capital investments to replace aging medical equipment and to add net new equipment to keep up with the growing demand. And have you had any response or what response have you had from the health ministry, from the provincial government when these concerns have been raised? So we have, um, we have sent three letters now to the Ministry of Health. And our, our most recent letter was sent in January 2023. The response to that letter came a few weeks ago and there was no mention at all about the crisis in the community imaging clinics. So it was a response to the letter, but, but didn't really respond to what concerns, what was actually being raised? Yes. Well, one of the main concerns we have is community imaging clinics, and that was not addressed at all in the letter.
So at this point, though, what do you do now when when you, the Radiological Society, is raising these concerns? Clinics are saying they could potentially be shutting their doors. What's your next move? Well, this is a crisis. We keep advocating for urgent action by the government. Um, we hope to meet with the Ministry of Health to discuss this further. We have offered solutions that we have offered to work with them to try and implement to improve this. Um, we're basically just trying to, to get the, the message out that this, this needs attention. And, and certainly people, I think, would agree, because just to go back to something that you said earlier as well, in that th- this appears to be, these clinics appear to be a vital part of our healthcare system. Even with that, though, we don't have great wait times. We don't have, we're not at the time, uh, the timeline that we should be at. Exactly. Even with these clinics, you know, there still are those other issues of the extreme shortage of medical imaging technologists, the lack of equipment, and, you know, the lack of breast radiologists and other things that are driving up the wait times for breast imaging. Well, it's certainly something that uh, I know people are going to be uh, very interested in following up. We are going to be following up on this as well. Dr. Yongheng, have we missed anything or is there anything else that you wanted to include? Well, I just want to, you know, repeat that the cost increases are pushing many of the community imaging clinics to the breaking point. And the BCRS keeps asking for emergency overhead support for the community imaging clinics, similar to what um, the family physicians got last year, but the government has not responded. Government is not recognizing how critical community imaging clinics sustainability is to proper functioning of the health system as a whole. Dr. Yong Hing, again, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for your interest. Ah, no problem. It's a pleasure to uh, join you on this beautiful day. It is National Indigenous Peoples Day, as people likely know. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about this and, and talk about the day itself. What is the importance or what do you hope people recognize and, and do today? Yeah, I think, you know, um, you know what, I really, what I really feel is it's, it's a celebratory day, you know, and it's, you know, and from any lens you look at it and from an indigenous lens, especially in regards to you know, um, I'm, I'm I'm I really feel uplifted because you know being able to know and uh, live in the times where you know we're in a place where we're we're allowed to celebrate who we are and where we come from as indigenous peoples. In the past, uh, in the not so long ago, where it was uh, against the law to. Um, celebrate who we are and where regalia speak our language um um drum and sing and um and to this day now i i really feel the the rejoice amongst people um and it's so enlightening to see so many uh events taking place today not not only throughout uh vancouver but the lower mainland and throughout bc and canada where you know a lot of people are taking advantage of a lot of events taking place but they have an open heart and mind to really learn more about uh, the surrounding Indigenous communities and their communities. Um, and I'll be a little biased here in Vancouver because I just came back from um, a morning ceremony and uh, with the Port of Vancouver, uh, just on the tip of uh, one of our villages where we uh, shared some words and educating some of the, the employees down there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a proud moment. And each, each year, you know, I, uh, 
I, I share a bit more stories with uh, not only my children, but uh, help educate and be a part of that voice to uh, share some of our history, especially from uh, where I grew up here within the Squamish Nation. And looking back, the day first recognized in 1990, what do you think has changed as far as, like you said, more people taking part in ceremonies, taking part in events that are happening? What do you think has changed to kind of to to make it more recognized? I I think a lot has changed. You know, you know, if we go back to, you know, from the early 90s when it was the proclamation decorating June 21st of each year as national at that time, Aboriginal day. But it, it, in the same sense too, like it's been quite a journey. It's been, um, you know, it, it didn't come across with, it came across with a lot of challenges, you know, and uh, our people are used to that. You know, there's, there's a strong resiliency that we share on this day as well, that our people are still here and uh, we're still strong and, um, uh, we still have our culture and our, 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 our teachings and that history. But I think, you know, it's very promising. And, you know, I always say to, you know, our people when we speak is that hope is still there. And that hope right now is growing and, uh, and it's enlightening as well. But there's, there's, there's that open mind. If we look at certain uh, pinnacle times where truth and reconciliation, these calls to action were adopted by, um, Canada and uh, provinces across Canada, where there's these calls, 94 calls to action for people to, it's not only for them, okay, we got to acknowledge what territory we're on, like a traditional welcome or land acknowledgement. It's more than that. It's around being able to allow Indigenous peoples in rooms and doors where they can help educate, you know, people of the that were on the land as indigenous peoples, but not only that, that uh, they share a bit of their culture. And um, it's a time and space where people who may not know some of this um, challenging history, but there's also some uplifting history that our people have thrived and in, 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 in integrated in a good way, you know, and I always go back to the growth of the city of Vancouver where, you know, we went from uh, more of a physical economy where we would trade, um, you know, hides and fish and canoes and artwork for, for, for food and stuff like that. And, and it became a monetary system, but also the through colonialism, there was a lot of uh, challenges our people were faced. And one of the main things was being imposed in what, what are called by the Canadian government as reserves. So we were put into pockets of boxes of land where before that it was, sort of uh, the land was, wasn't owned, it was just uh, used by our peoples. And, uh, and, you know, we've come a long way, but at the same time, you look at uh, not only the calls to action, you look at uh, the, the challenges and the true history, dark history that's coming out through residential schools as well. I think, you know, more people are, have that generous ear to, to learn, but also their eyes as well to really you know, witness what we say in our language, or in our culture, and our teachings is be a witness to some of the words that are shared. Because you know, when we speak to Indigenous leaders and families and matriarchs, that uh, it's uh, paying respect and loaning your ear more than talking, so that it brings in more uh, wholesome education. But a lot of our 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 people speak from the heart and the truth, and uh, 
And I think that these part of the culture and teachings are coming back. But in order to be a stronger community, um, we need to unite together. And we use a word in Chopmo, uh, one heart and one mind. And it's a journey. We have a long way to go. But I think there's, you know, we're celebrating June with uh, Indigenous Peoples Month. So I really appreciate that as well. But especially today where, you know, if people have a, you know, half a day or a day off work where they can participate in some of these events. But, uh, you know, I encourage people too to, you know, reconnect with some of their Indigenous friends and, um, but also our Indigenous communities as well. You know, use your voice, get out there and be a part of these events that are taking place in our backyards and, you know, sh- help share and, um, and not only have the voice, but be a part of events annually where, you know, we take our children out, we take our families out, and we start celebrating who we are and being proud. And it was so enlightening to see many orange shirts worn by the, the, some of the audience today, but also um, people really uh, um, taking part in the ceremony as well and dancing and uh, singing away. But, it, uh, you know, when I, I, I took a, a loaf of bannock for my family, so it was, uh, and uh, we'll have some tea and toast later, so. All right. Well, there are so many events and I'm glad that you brought those ones up and encourage people to find out what is happening and take part as well. Wilson, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for being available and for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on today. Have a great uh, Indigenous Peoples Day and uh, we look forward to reconnecting soon and celebrating in another year in the future. We'll see you. Yeah, Jill, thank you for having me on today. Well, I want to start with the, the good news. It sounds like you have reached your fundraising campaign. There was a, a Kickstarter that was uh, ongoing until today. Uh, is that the case, that you've raised the funds to get this project, this tour we app going? We're so happy we reached our goal. We're grateful for the support out in the community. And that last little leg of funding is going to allow us to do our last little bit of footage because we have completed our Talking Trees app, but we were literally waiting for the good weather and the blooms and the berries to ripen so that we can finish off the last segment of Talking Trees, which will be one of the programs on our app. Well, it sounds so interesting. So let's back up a little bit and talk a bit more about the app and uh, these unique tours that uh, I understand they take place at Sunshine Coast, the Sea to Sky area, Squamish Whistler, as well as downtown Vancouver. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all works? Yes, um, we're um, local Indigenous community members, representative of all of the local tribes, Leelwat, Squamish, Musqueam, Seashaw. And we offer tours in our community, including Vancouver, um, Stanley Park being our primary location because many of our people are from the Vancouver area. So we've been offering walking tours for several years now. And it's been really difficult to keep up with the demand. So we took to technology to support people to have a cultural experience while they're in Stanley Park. So how does that work then? Does somebody download the app and then they can follow along with the app rather than, say, a more traditional walking tour with a guide leading you? We know we will always have the interest for the walking tours, but um, we also recognize people are on really tight schedules these days and 
people could download the, the app at their convenience and have a guided walking tour right in the park itself or have the experience at home. And they could take the program on their handheld phone even from the comfort of their home. Oh, interesting. So you don't actually have to physically be in the area. I, I mean, although that would be a different experience, I'm sure, but you don't have to be in the area to get the information and to go through the tour? Yes, that's right. You have the option of doing it from home, or if you are in the area and you're enjoying the trails in Stanley Park, you could also have a self-guided experience when you walk up to the tree or the totem. It will um, the the segment will um, come alive for you, and our ambassador will share the stories that totem pole or the technological medicinal use of the tree. And you mentioned the, the talking trees, uh, the talking, uh, the totems, uh, and other treasures. How did you kind of decide which things you would put in the tour, and and what what stories and what histories would be shared? We know we. It was actually a. It was not a difficult choice because talking trees is our most popular tour, and um, it's nature based, and everybody loves nature. So that was a simple decision for us, but when it came to talking totems, we had the opportunity to do spoken treasures, which is the history of the land through Indigenous size, or talking totems. And talking totems is the art and culture of the Salish people and Northwest Coast cultures, but because of the beautiful imagery and the sculptures and totem poles in Stanley Park, we elected to choose talking totems. One of the other factors was talking totems, if a person wanted to do a self-guided tour, it has a shorter distance, so if someone had mobility issues, they can still get the rich history of the area and the art and culture um, by being in a smaller vicinity within the Stanley Park Totem Pole Park. And have you, have you, um, as far as people downloading the app and and showing interest, what has that been like? Because I would imagine there's quite a lot of of there's different ways to experience Stanley Park, but this certainly would be a more educational one. We have um, we always considered ourselves an educational Indigenous tour company, but we like to keep it fun. And we have a lot of interest from schools. We work with over 55 schools already with our company. And um, we have a lot of interest amongst the general public. So, in fact, the Kickstarter is going until the end of today. So people can still um, support through the Kickstarter or it's available on, on Apple. And you can download it now through the app system. All right. And do you plan on expanding or, or going into different areas as well and doing similar tours elsewhere? We do. We have these aspirations and hopes and um, to potentially partner with other Indigenous communities so they can highlight and profile their culture and history and their relationship to the land. And at the same time, we really want to give our initial project its due diligence and and make sure that we do it well. And so um, once we feel confident that um, we have everything in place, um, we'll go on to our next endeavors, All right. including the Sky Whistler. 
All right. And uh, Candice, just to let people know, the Talese Tours, so if they search for the Talese Tours app, it will come up. And is it pretty easy to find that way? It is, yes. All right. Well, it's such a, a great project, and I'm so glad that uh, you were able to meet your fundraising goal and uh, still fundraising for more. Uh, Candice, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Jill. Happy Indigenous Day. Well, another day and another turn when it comes to the future of policing in Surrey. This time we have heard from the Ethics Commissioner in Surrey and the Ethics Commissioner report was released and it talks about a vote that took place in November of 2022. And this has been raised before the complaints about one particular city councillor who has family ties to the RCMP and whether or not that councillor should have been allowed to vote on that day, on that vote that took place in November. So the ethics commissioner has noted that there was no potential source for a conflict of interest in relation to future decisions concerning the transition because of the family member. However, the commissioner did rule that the councillor was in fact in breach of the code of conduct. So what kind of reaction are we getting to this? Joining me now is Darren Shepard, union executive with the Surrey Police Union. Darren, thanks so much for taking some time. Thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, this is something that, that has been discussed. I know the union, the Surrey Police Union, has has made their point about the or their, their preference when it comes to the councillor in question here, uh, Councillor Stutt. Uh, what are your thoughts then on, on the ruling today or what we are finding out from this uh, ethics report? Um, yes, it's uh, it's not surprising. We felt strongly all along that there was a, a conflict of interest when Councillor Stutt um, made the decision to vote the way he did at that time. It's unfortunate that he did not self-disclose that conflict or seek advice uh, surrounding it and that Mayor Locke didn't identify it. But uh, what's done is done. And when we became aware of the issues and uh, expressed our concerns to the newly appointed ethics commissioner, uh, we are appreciative that the our concerns were were looked at and and addressed in his report today. Uh, he did rule, though, that that there wasn't a direct or indirect uh, pecuniary interest in the matter. That that the councillor didn't really have uh, wouldn't be benefiting specifically or because of the family relationship alone. And I think that was part of the reasoning as to why this wasn't. He wasn't found in conflict of interest, but was found to uh, breach the code of conduct. Uh, not that it makes it will change anything moving forward. But do you think that would have changed? Uh, the trajectory of things, given that if this councillor had not voted in November of 2022, there would that would have been a tie. Uh, other councillors are pointing out that it would have then failed. We would not have gotten to the point where there was the in-camera vote that we had, uh, that we have now been made aware of, that took place earlier this month. That's correct, yes. We, uh, we feel strongly that it did change the trajectory of uh, over the last seven months uh, because of the, the vote that took place and the fact that uh, Councillor Stutt was allowed to vote at that time. Um, so, yes, it was unfortunate in that uh, he did not again self-disclose. Um, we were looking for some transparency. I think everybody is in this process, and we were uh, disappointed that that failed to emerge on its own, and we felt it was important we bring this to light. 
Does it also show once again that here we are talking about what should be a conversation about public safety, about the future of policing, what policing would be the best for Surrey in the future? And the conversation is now still so fixed on uh, what's happening at council, on a potential uh, a breach of code of conduct, rather than the issues which, which many would say are, are more important, which is what is the better police force for this city? Uh, yes, it is very unfortunate, and that none of us that came to the Surrey Police Service or joined the Surrey Police Union had the desire to be involved in politics. So we prefer to keep politics out of policing, um, but we do feel that when an issue like this, uh, we're aware of it. It is important for us to bring it to the public's attention, and um, yeah, we just want to get on with the business of policing and ensuring that there's an increased level of public safety for the citizens of Surrey. So we're hoping that that uh, will be. Um, an option provided to us in the very near future. Have you been given any indication, and not that the release of this report would change that or or likely have any impact on that, but have you been given any indication at this point as to when you might hear from Minister Farnworth regarding that final decision? Uh, No, we haven't uh, had any information shared with us. And um, it is unfortunate, again, that this, uh, while we appreciate the Ethics Commissioner taking his time and due diligence to uh, do a... uh, um, a very full, fulsome investigation into our concerns. Uh, it's unfortunate, I believe, that uh, um, there was uh, a bit of a delay in terms of um, uh, the councillor sharing information, which would have helped the ethics commissioner get to his decision sooner. And as a result, this decision didn't come down until uh, about five months after we'd uh, raised the initial our initial concerns. So. We were hoping for something a bit more timely, but understanding that um, the ethics commissioner wasn't able to complete his report until he had obtained the cooperation of Councillor Stutt. Uh, do you think if this report had come out earlier, would there be an, would there have been more of an argument that Councillor uh, Rob Stutt not vote at the, the June 15th in-camera meeting? I can't say what would or would not have transpired from that. These are all... Things that have unfortunately already passed now, and we're looking more towards the future at this point. We are uh, thankful that the um, the ethics commissioner did, as I said, uh, do a fulsome investigation, uh, that he has reached a conclusion and made that public. Um, now we're looking forward to the future in terms of where we go from here. Um, Councillor Studd does still hold a position on the Public Safety Committee um, as a chair, and we believe that he should be removed as the chair of that committee. Uh, given the concerns that we've raised and um, the conflict of interest. Right. Even though the report, I know there were earlier reports saying that he was found in conflict of interest, although if you read through the the findings of the commissioner, uh, he kind of, uh, he doesn't actually say he was in a conflict of interest. He, he He actually says the opposite of that, but does say that he was breaching the code of conduct. Mm-hmm. Well, the breaches are still uh, very concerning to us in terms of what position somebody would hold on a committee that's supposed to be doing the best for the citizens of Surrey. And we want somebody that's in charge of the public safety committee that has a proven track record of being an ethical and transparent individual. Uh, it's my contention that uh, this uh, is indicative, indicative, pardon me, of the opposite of that and that uh, for him to hold the position, the very important position of chair of the public safety committee, uh, should at the very least be examined by Mayor Locke and Council um, with these uh, facts that have been brought to light today.
What's next then for you when you talk about kind of waiting again for this final decision as the Surrey Police Union? How do you go about business as usual if there even is such a thing right now, given uh, the circumstances or or what what do you do while waiting and kind of being in this place of limbo? Uh, We will continue to do what we signed up for, and that is to look out for the citizens of Surrey, uh, increase public safety within uh, the municipality and the city of Surrey. And we will continue to do our job. There's been no uh, wavering in our efforts. Uh, we will uh, we will be here until uh, we hear to the contrary. And there's no indication that we will hear anything to the contrary. Um, we will continue to look out for our citizens and uh, look out for the community. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Darren, for coming on the show, uh, for updating us on this. I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. But thank you again so much for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, uh, so many people are waiting and uh, looking at those updates when it comes to the search for the missing Titan. That's the submersible that was headed to the wreckage of the Titanic. My next guest has been has experience with these types of expeditions. David Chen is joining us now, a former tech deep instructor. David, thanks so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, can you explain what a, a tech deep instructor is? What what did you do in that role? So most people are familiar with recreational diving, which is pretty safe. It's pretty easy. It has a limit of about 100 feet of salt water. Technical divers are essentially doing military type of dives at a recreational level. So we're not being paid to do that. Uh, in the early years, they call, some called it the dark arts because we borrowed tables from the military, we borrowed technology, used mixed gases, used rebreathers, all that type of stuff in order to go where the recreational diver was not meant to go. And when you look at what's happening then with this search for the submersible and what we know so far and with today, the, the looking at potentially when they heard noises coming from that part of the ocean, what is your response to that? Well, first and foremost, a flashback. Because, uh, in 2000, when I was in the diving industry, ironically, it was when the Kursk was lost. And uh, one of our clients was Phil Newton. And he popped into our store and I had a chat with him and uh, the chances of them saving anyone on the curse was pretty much zero. And uh, I, I, you know, hope I'm wrong, but uh, chances are really slim that they're going to be able to save these people. And what makes you say, I know we're, we're looking at this and the, the time that's gone by and, and I know they talked earlier about the oxygen that's left and the, the provisions that might be aboard the Titan. But, but what makes you say that? Well, you know, simply put, like, they have to find this vessel. The vessel is not designed to be docked with anything and have that door opened underwater. From just a scuba perspective, we couldn't even send a diver in there to rescue them. Our typical, uh, you know, um, compressed air tanks are at 3,000 PSI. I've done the math. At that depth, it's about 5,600 PSI. The minute you open up a scuba tank, water will rush in. No gas will come out. So I'm not even sure how, even if they find the vessel, that they could get these people out of there without bringing the submersible back up. That is literally, as far as I can see, their only hope. And so essentially, imagine being inside this metal coffin. Uh, it's cold. I mean, the temperature in that, that depth is about 2 degrees Celsius. 
and uh, they're running math, and that math is saying that you may not come out alive. Uh, but that's quite a um, stressful thing to go through. Right. And we talked about this with a, with another um, expert earlier this week as well and talked about that they would be encouraged to do whatever they could to not use as much uh, um, oxygen or use as little oxygen as possible. And that, yes, there's likely going to be panic, but then it's a matter of calming down. And, and I, I know, I mean, it's, it's awful for anybody to kind of think of what it would be like to be in that situation. And you uh, have more experience with this or, or uh, exposure to this than most. But uh, but I, I guess the the thing too with the U.S. Coast Guard earlier today was asked that specific question: Do you still have hope? And the answer was yes, we do, and that's why we're still searching. Well, I agree with that because you know early when I was learning how to do technical diving, I had an instructor, and he told me a story about a cave diver who had gone in two kilometers in and got lost on his way out, and. Uh, at the end, when they you know, eventually found him, they found that he had written a note to his wife that he loved her. But he had like air in his tank, and he was 200 meters from the opening of the cave. So literally, the only thing I can say, as daunting as it may be, is don't give up. Um, I've had accidents underwater. I've done the math. Uh, it's terrifying when you go, yeah, the numbers are not in my favor, and you do everything you can to survive. Fortunately, I am here because I wouldn't give up. Um, so I would say, yeah, don't give up until it's over. I'm sure that the Apollo 13 astronauts thought the same, but they made it home. Uh, as long as there's uh, oxygen inside of that submersible and that the U.S. Coast Guard and the military and the Canadian Coast Guard are able to locate this quickly and actually have a submersible or a submarine that can go down there and retrieve that uh, submersible, there's a chance. Right. And uh, you, you kind of touched on this and, and not that I want to overly simplify it, but, but can they, is it a cha- the, that they, if they are able to locate the submersible, uh, can they, it's, I mean, it's in such deep waters, can they bring it up or how would they bring it up at that point I- intact and bring it up uh, to save these people? Well, my understanding of most submersibles is they do have ballast tanks. So somehow they would have to get the water out of the ballast tank to start bringing it up. Um, they can certainly try to use lift bags and compress air into it from that depth. I mean, you wouldn't be able to do that with, you know, basic uh, air tanks, but, uh, you know, vessels that are designed to go that deep would have the ability to push that out. Um, again, most of the vessels are not really designed to be uh, what we call really negative. Like they're not meant to sink like a stone at that depth. They're meant to be relatively neutral that they sort of don't float, don't sink. Um, if anything, maybe slightly negative. So it it probably not as difficult as people think to bring it back up. But if it has no power and you know no propulsion system and no ability to clear out its ballast tanks, it it really has no ability on its own to come back up. So it really is going to depend on uh, a rescue team having uh, the resources to to bring it back up. And David, just one other question. When you talked about the fact that you have survived accidents, do you remember what it was like, what went through your mind when you realized that things weren't playing out the way they were supposed to? Yeah, I had a really bad dive on a night dive. So I remember it being dark, being cold. And I remember looking at my dive computer and it said that I had uh, 30 minutes of decompression to do and 20 minutes of air. 
And that was with all my reserves. I had a problem that happened, and I looked at and I'm like, so I stay the 30 minutes and drown underwater, or I cut my decompression 10 minutes short and have, uh, you know, decompression sickness on the surface. It's a lose-lose scenario. Uh, really what I needed to do at that time was to use my wits, calm myself down, drop my breathing rate, and I was able to bring my airtime back up to about 30 minutes, which is borderline. Um, there's a few things that change, uh, changes in your human physiology when you're trying to decompress under that extreme condition, and um, it worked. I'm still here today, so that's why I say don't give up. But I understand the panic. I mean, you know, I, I think there's nothing that scares people more than the thought of drowning or suffocating. It's uh, no, it's it's very, very true. And that's uh, why we are all still uh, extremely hopeful and uh, hoping that we get some good news in the very near future. David, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, sharing your perspective on this. Appreciate it. Thank you. We have been talking a lot about different ways people are now choosing to leave the planet. We talked about terramation, aquamation. We checked in with the entrepreneur in Amsterdam who is making coffins out of mushrooms. All things that seem a little bit out there, but they are becoming more and more popular. At least people are looking into it and looking at other ways of dealing with that. But what about before you go, making sure that everything is in order. My next guest is Michelle Unsworth Foot, and she is the author of a book called How to Get Your, and the next word is S H asterisk T, together. And Michelle joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you so much, Jill. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's such a great book. It's not a huge book in case people are thinking it's a very uh, labor-intensive read. It's not huge. It's filled. It's got some humor in it. But it also comes from a place, uh, your personal story, and and not to to spend all of the time talking about your personal story, but that was a big reason why you actually wanted to write this book and put all of this down. Yeah, for sure. I um I lost two husbands to death um in very different ways. One uh died of cancer and one died very suddenly of a stroke. And so, you know, in in the context of losing both of them, um but losing them in very different ways, I started to think about all the things that I learned in that those processes. And people started asking me questions and I realized that I had really compiled a bucket load of information that I really wanted to share. So I got some advice and uh, was was advised to write a book, and, and here we are. <laughs> and it must have been, I mean, devastating, for lack of a, a better word, to go through that, and to go through that twice, but also so incredibly different in that you write about the fact that your your first husband was, was given a prognosis and, and pretty much that was correct. And he lived for nine months that your, your second husband died quite suddenly. It must've just been so different having, I mean, awful, but in the one, one case, having that time to prepare and then not having any time to prepare at all. Exactly. So there, there were a lot of differing factors in there. Uh, One, as you said, you know, one had a diagnosis and one didn't. And the other thing was one was in 2011 and one was right at the beginning of COVID. So talk about having a different experience where, you know, we couldn't have family and friends around. We couldn't even really 
um, honor my my last husband, Graham, because we weren't allowed to. So, you know, all the things that I talk about in the book about, you know, planning your funeral and telling people what you want, those were all out the window because we just weren't able to do anything like that. So there were lots and lots of different factors between the two, both tragic, but in the end, um, we learned so much. And I had the greatest gift because I got to love two really amazing men. Hmm. That's a, that is a, an, a, a very good way of looking at it. And you took away this information and, and took it from such a painful place uh, to help others and to share it with others. So I want to go through a bit of what you cover in the book and something that we, we hear time and time again that everybody should have a will, but it can be a difficult thing to actually sit down and do. So this is the number one thing that I talk to people about all the time is If you own anything, you should have a will. So I really want people, if if you only take one thing away from this conversation, it should be that. Um, Because uh, I I quote a a wonderful colleague who says, wills help maintain family relationships. Without your, your wishes set down in paper, you are leaving it up to people in the very worst time of their lives after they've lost you trying to figure out what should be done with all of your assets. It can be incredibly expensive because you have to get lawyers involved and you you have to do an awful lot of extra paperwork, but it's also taxing on those that you left behind. Truly, truly taxing. So that's the very most important thing I can I can recommend for everybody. Do you think there's the idea too that that writing a will is very labor intensive and that it's it's expensive or can be and that's another reason why people maybe put it off? For sure. I think I think labor intensive, expensive and just plain old hard. So what I, what I can tell you is there are a number number of online tools that you can use. You can go the route that I went, which is I engaged a lawyer and I kind of went through everything. It doesn't have to be labor intensive, um, but it does have to be clear. And I talk a lot about um, setting expectations with your family about what's in the will, because I've heard many stories of people going, oh, my God, I had no idea. I didn't know I was being left this or I didn't know that I wasn't being left something. So taking that all into consideration, and I do, I do mention a funny thing that, you know, my dad kept saying, I heard a story once as soon as somebody wrote a will, he got hit by a car and he died. So let's take that, that out of it as well, right? You're, you're, that's not going to happen. Just sit down, do it, and it's done. It's pretty great. I had an aunt, a great aunt, actually, who went through and uh, it might have been before post-it notes even, but she taped little pieces of paper to everything in her house with names on it. And that was to go to that person. And so there was no debate. This and she and she and some people thought it was a bit morbid that she did that, but it was her way of organizing and making sure everyone knew. Uh, You have a chapter, chapter three in your book. It says, let people know your wishes. And I would imagine that's above and beyond having a will talking about it and letting people know. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's all sorts of things. It's it's um, letting people know if you've got a power of attorney for personal care or a power of attorney for your finances. Um, it's also letting people know what you want to happen if if you're unable to tell them. So beyond the legal right, just keep letting people have that reassurance of knowing these are truly what my wishes are. 
take all the guesswork out of it. Like writing a will, take all the guesswork out of anything that you feel is important to you if you become ill, incapacitated, or if, if you do pass. You have a chapter as well that has to do with choosing an executor. Do, do people, do you think, and you've gone through this, but do, do people uh, kind of not get what an important role that is and what a time-consuming and taxing role that can be as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are approximately 64 steps that an executor has to take to settle an estate. It is incredibly taxing. And what people tend to do, Jill, is they tend to pick either their spouse or a child. And oftentimes, they, the, the chosen ones don't really understand what they need to do. There are lots of um, legal, legal steps that need to be taken. There are tax steps. And then it's also the emotional stuff, too. So you've kind of got to play a little bit of a relationship manager, if you like, with the family, especially if people didn't know what was in your will. Um, the other thing I will say about choosing an executor, I strongly recommend pick one. Um, you know, people seem to think that I'll pick all my kids and it will be even. But what ends up happening in, in those situations is they might all have to be together at the same time to sell assets, to sell homes. There might be some some disagreement that can really preclude settling estates in a timely manner. So pick one and then let everybody know who you picked and why you picked them. Take all that guesswork out of it. All right. And uh, I don't want to give away everything in the book, but one of uh, the other chapters that I thought was really interesting was remembering that funerals are not all about you. <laughs> so what what advice do you give people about that? So so this comes from a lot of stories that I that I uh, have heard over the years. And uh, one of the things that was brought to my attention was, oh my gosh, sometimes the expectations are so crazy. How am I going to get that violinist? How am I going to get this music? So be reasonable in what you want. But I would also say the second part of that, be reasonable with what you don't want. So I do, I do mention a story about somebody who was told, under no circumstances are you to allow my sister to come to my funeral. The sister approached uh, uh, the individual and begged to be allowed. So what do you do in that time? Do you, do you, uh, you know, say, yes, of course, you can come and think, oh, my gosh, now I'm not honoring her wishes. Or do you not let her come, this person who is grieving and may have huge regret? So what I would say is be reasonable and, you know, help people understand that these are things that you would like. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that need the closure and they're the ones that need this as part of moving forward. All right. Well, there's uh, so much more information. We can't get to all of it, but that's okay because people can pick up the book. I do. I love the phrase as well. And I know you talk a little bit about how you came up with the phrase death ready. Oh, yeah. My Aunt Millie, who was Marie Kondo before Marie (laughs) Kondo was Marie Kondo. Um, You know, this idea of just having things in order. So, by the way, your aunt is my hero with the post-it <laughs> notes. I love that. Um, but it, it, it just really means that you're living a life that is somewhat organized, um, that you let people know what you, what you want, what you believe in, 
and you're not leaving any heavy lifting to people after you're gone. So you just, you, you create a beautiful home, you, you create a beautiful life, you surround yourself with great people, and uh, everybody knows what's going on. All That's right. a great way to live. All right. Well, it's uh, it's a, a very uh, important book. And again, it's not too labor intensive to read it. And it's got some humor in it as well. Michelle, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is a story that is getting a lot of attention, and it has to do with Barbie Q, your pig, one of several animals you have on your hobby farm in Souk. Tell us a little bit about Barbie. So we've had Barbie for six years. She was a house pig for the first three years of her life. Uh, She went everywhere with us. She was like one of our dogs. She went camping. She did tricks. She, everywhere we went, she went with us. And, um... At about three, we decided that she needs to go outside and be more like a pig and do pig things. And we've got her a little sibling. And uh, he's been outside with the rest of the barn animals for the past three years. Wow. And how big is she? Um, she's probably about 180 pounds. Um, pigs have dense fat, so she's not terribly big. She's about the size of a medium dog. All right. So she was a house pig now living outside. And from what I understand, so you were actually away. There was a house sitter that was at the hobby farm looking after the animals and something, the house sitter noticed that something was amiss. What happened? Yes, yeah, so we were away for about a week. We had our dogs who usually keep watch on the, on the farm. And she went down to feed them in the morning and breakfast time being their favorite time of day. The animals usually come up to the gate to greet whoever's going down to feed them. And she noticed that nobody was coming to greet her. At that point, she noticed there was a feed bag on the ground and she went down and investigated a little more and all the animals were eating the leftover grain on the ground. So at that point, she was worried because the sheep and uh, goats, if they get into grain, they can get bloat, and that's not a good thing for them. So she called our emergency contact who came up and noticed there had been a breach in the fence. Um, At that point, she tried to get a hold of us, and we were pretty sure that something big, a black bear, had got into the pen with the animals at some point. Which must have been pretty scary because I would think if a black bear got in with the the sheep, the goats, the pigs, that could be a a very, very bad outcome. Absolutely. I mean, it was scary. It was scary for her. We packed up her stuff and came right home. We knew it was more than she can manage uh, fixing the fence and dealing with some sick animals if we had that on hand. So we arrived home at 1030 at night. We played our security cameras and lo and behold there was a black bear and our little feisty barbecue was fighting that black bear off (laughs) (laughs) wow so when you saw that and and you looked at the security footage what was your first response when you saw uh, not only did did she fight that bear but uh, that she stood up and and it sounds like she stood up to protect the other animals as well she did. I was in disbelief. We have a, a goat named Gus, and she's terrified of him. He comes within five feet, and she's running the other way and squealing. So watching the video and seeing the bear coming up to her, I was 
quite terrified, even though I knew the outcome of it. I, I just couldn't believe my eyes and, and to see her fight back like that, it was unbelievable. Um, but well, that she was so fierce towards this bear. <laughs> what was she doing? How was she fighting back against the bear? She was, she more was like charging. They kind of charged to, to assert their territory and their dominance. They work in a hierarchy, um, kind of in their herd of, of their pig crew. So I think she was kind of telling him like, I'm the boss in this pen and you better leave. So, <laughs> and then to see him after surrender and sit on his bum and almost beg for her mercy, stop, you know, um, was kind of shocking to see that, you know, he, I don't know if he wanted to make friends or if he just realized who he was dealing with. (laughs) (laughs) How long did the encounter last? Uh, He was in there for about half an hour. Um, The whole encounter with Barbie was probably about 10 minutes. Um, And uh, after he kind of raised his paw at her, he just kind of lied on the ground. And and then when she kind of realized that he wasn't a threat and, and... she walked away is when he tried to find his exit out of the pen. Wow. So he was right in there with the, with the other animals and, and spending time and, and kind of poking around the enclosure. Oh, 100%. There was one point where um, Barbie actually went back to where the other animals were when they were getting too close to the gate where the bear and herself were and kind of rushed back at them to keep them far enough away from the bear. And and you mentioned too, so you mentioned that Barbie was actually afraid of one of the goats, one of the other animals, but have you ever seen Barbie show this kind of aggression or or kind of stand up and protect the other animals before? Um, Not the other animals. She wants to tell them that she's the boss. I've never really seen her like protect them, but she can be ornery with strangers. Um, She likes to run the barnyard and it's, you know, she's, She's the boss, except for that one goat who's the boss of her. Um, so, yeah, she's. it's hard for me to believe she used to cuddle in bed for three years, and here's this pig that is standing up to this black bear. It's, it, it was amazing to see. Well, yeah, especially, like you said, that she was a, a house pig for the first three years, that, that she had that instinct or where she would have even learned that instinct to stand up to a bear and to, and to do that. Yeah, it's quite it's quite amazing. I just I can't believe it. Um, yeah, I just kind of look at her a little bit different, and I appreciate that she saved everybody and and uh, yeah, that she she wanted to protect them. How do you reward a pig that does that? <laughs> well, she got a big bowl of fruit salad, and she spent the day in the yard yesterday, and and lots of cuddles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would imagine, too, that you're getting calls from all around. How much attention is this story getting? Oh, it's been ridiculous. My phone has been off the hook. I said I was telling Barbie yesterday that she needed her own personal assistant and agenda book because I just can't keep up with all the calls and interviews and visitors. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite amazing. And it's almost unbelievable, like I said, that this this pig that, you know, was their little house pig has gained so much uh, attention. 
Oh, for sure. Um, not that Barbie couldn't do this again or, and stand her own and protect everyone, but have you changed or will you change the enclosure or any of the things that are in place to hopefully keep bears away in the future? Yeah, so we came back right away with our dogs just to get their scent around and, and our one dog's been out every night with them um, uh, while we're installing an electric fence so that if we do take the dogs again, then at least we know that there is the safety of an electric fence. So... Well, it's uh, an amazing story, and I'm not surprised that Barbie is getting so much attention uh, to, to, and uh, getting so many people uh, calling and wanting to learn more about this. Crystal, thank you. Again, I know you're getting so many calls, but thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me again, Jill, and have a good day.